Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. And I am really, really excited to welcome to the show, Patrick Holford. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. <laughs> so I know we connected at the Nutritional Medicine um, uh, Summit a couple of weeks ago, um, which was hugely, hugely informative with regards to how we can use uh, nutrition in the context of medicine. Um, which we don't use it enough of. Um, and I know that you are an expert in this space. So for those that don't know Patrick, he's a leading spokesman on nutrition and mental health and founder of both the Food for the Brain Foundation and the Institute for Optimal Nutrition, which is an educational charity that offers degrees accredited to training in nutritional therapy, which I know many people, particularly in the medical space, need more knowledge of. He originally trained in psychology and was involved in groundbreaking research showing that multivitamins can increase children's IQ scores, which was also a subject of Horizon documentary. And he was also uh, one of the first promoters of the importance of zinc, which is uh, also is essential fatty acids low GL diets and homocysteine, lowering B vitamins and their importance in mental health and Alzheimer's prevention. Um, and he not only that is author of 46 books, which have been translated in over 30 languages, including the Optimum Nutrition Bible, Optimum Nutrition for the Mind and so many more. And he's now really focused on driving food for the brain so patrick what a phenomenal accomplishment and and wealth of expertise that you have uh, in your career so i'm really looking forward to to such an important conversation in, in today's world and I, I i'm excited about the uh, food for the brain initiative that that you're bringing uh, to the uk with so many experts also uh, underpinning this in the background and using science as the fundamental to the work that you're doing so before we dive into your journey and also the message that you want to share on this show, I'd love to know what you're super passionate about in life right now. Well, apart from uh, preventing Alzheimer's, my sort of secret pleasure is, is paragliding. Uh, so I'm down here in the Black Mountains of Wales and uh, whenever I get a day off, well, whenever the weather is right, actually, I go up the mountains with my 10 kilo uh, bag, uh, backpack uh, full of my paraglider and jump off and fly. And it certainly focuses the mind in many respects. So that's my passion at the moment. I'm sure it does. And I, I, I haven't done paragliding, but I have done parachuting. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like the thrill of um, falling through the air um, and, and feeling at one with with just the air, the air itself i i i haven't i'd love to try it so i, I love the black mountains it's a beautiful part of the country mm -hmm. and so i can't imagine how enjoyable it must be just looking down on the uh the vistas that 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 oh. lie beneath and uh, and using the air air currents to your advantage so great fun <laughs> so i'd love to um dive into the topic of alzheimer's prevention because mm -hmm. i know it's a super passion of yours and it's something that I don't think we really give enough airtime to uh, to raise awareness as to what we can do as individuals and as organizations um, in, in the context of the general public and businesses as a whole to really help people mm -hmm. limit cognitive decline. So I'd, I'd love to know before we dive into that, what does optimal brain health mean for you personally in the context of your journey? Well, I mean, it means having a sharp mind, good memory, you can make connections, you have good mood, you have good motivation. So everything's working, not sort of brain fog, brain fag, uh, you know, and all those kind of dips. And actually, when I got started, when I was an undergraduate studying psychology, in essence, I was interested in three things. I was interested in intelligence. I was interested in love. Uh, you, you know, we say love makes the world go around. I remember asking my psychology degree, are we going to ever, you know, look at love? And they said, no, don't be ridiculous. This is a scientific endeavor we're doing here. 
And um, then I got really interested in schizophrenia because one in a hundred people suffer from this terrible debilitating disease. And I wanted to know why. And it was, it was uh, those subjects, well, not so much the love, that led me into the brain and in the brain led me into nutrition because the brain consumes more nutrients than any other organ of the body, followed closely by the liver. So the brain, in a way, is the new frontier. You know, what's going on between our ears uh, is really uh, the, the frontier. And I believe, well, it's not a question of belief, it's a fact. We are physical beings. Uh, you know, we have a body and a brain and so on, and we're psychological beings, and we're emotional, intellectual beings, and we're spiritual beings. Even if you're, you would classify yourself as an atheist, we all have a context in which we live our life, a sort of deepest meaning thereof, even if we think that meaning is meaningless. Uh, and we live in an environment. So we're all of these things. So I love uh, Daniel Amen's work on the sort of physical side of the brain. It's so mm -hmm. important. And um, one of the things it reminded me of is that we know that the shrinkage that occurs in the brain, uh, that is the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, uh, is occurring maybe 40 years before a diagnosis occurs. Just to give you an example, behind me, you see these brains. Well, yeah. you know, the one on this side says placebo. That was the shrinkage in the Alzheimer's areas of the brains over a 18-month uh, period on a group of people on uh, B vitamins, uh, sorry, on placebo, given nothing. These mm -hmm. were what we call mild cognitive impairment or pre-dementia. And then on the other side, see, there's much less. Can you see there's yeah. much less? So, so for those of you that that obviously can't see what Patrick is showing because you're listening on the podcast ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. panels, I'll just explain is on it's the left-hand exactly, side, there's a lot of yellow areas showing nine times less shrinkage of the Alzheimer's-related areas of the brain um, over the period of this study, nine times less uh, with the group given the B vitamins versus placebo. And just to explain, as you start to lose your memory or cognitive mm. function, um, well, actually, the truth is that begins, you know, many, many years before. For example, a study just out showed that your glucose level in the blood predicts your risk of dementia. Your glucose level in the blood at the age of 35 reduces your risk of dementia. So probably we start to lose our cognitive function. When it gets serious enough, we might possibly go and see a doctor and they might diagnose us on the basis of a cognitive function test with mild cognitive impairment or MCI, or we would call it pre-dementia. Now, if it gets worse than that, uh, it's called dementia. But two thirds of dementia is actually Alzheimer's, which can only be diagnosed by doing a brain scan because you're looking at a central part of the brain, the hippocampus mm -hmm. is part of that. And you can actually see shrinkage in that central part. And that is Alzheimer's. This is not a normal part of the aging process. It may be common, but it's not right. It's not, you can live to 100 without any shrinkage of this medial temporal lobe at all and without any loss of cognitive function. So it became clear to me that Alzheimer's is a disease in the same way that diabetes and heart disease and cancer are diseases. You don't have to have them. Yeah. And, and it is preventable. And unlike even diabetes, less than 1%, that is less than 1 in 100 cases of Alzheimer's is caused by genes. No, I just yeah. want to pause you there because I think this is really important yeah. that 99 out of 100 cases are not gene related. That's correct. Yeah. So, They're, you know, yeah. we, we think that once, you know, we, we talk about the APOE4 gene, don't we? And if you if you have the APOE4 gene, which is a sign that you have an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, it, it, people kind of think it's a sentence. <laughs> Yeah. That they're going to get Alzheimer's, but actually, that's one out of ninety-nine <laughs> things. Well, it's slightly different to that. Just to be clear, there are um, certain genes called senilin and presenilin genes, which, if you have those genes in your family, you get very early Alzheimer's. In other words, in the fifties or sixties. So anybody getting Alzheimer's in their seventies or eighties is not really in that category. Mm -hmm. and that is less than one in a hundred cases of Alzheimer's. Now, which cause, you know, and we don't know how, what to do with those, you know, so we, it's, it's, it's a sad thing. There are other genes which do not cause Alzheimer's, 
but they do increase your risk depending on what you do. And one of those is the APOE4 gene. Now, if you have that and you can have a single or a double version of it, yeah. it increases your risk by about 4 to 6%. But you can mitigate all of that risk by doing the kind of nutritional and lifestyle things that we um, are going to talk about. So these do not cause, APOE4 does not cause Alzheimer's. It increases the risk if Absolutely, yeah. you eat a bad diet, don't exercise, smoke, and all the rest of that. And, and, I, and I think that's really important for people to remember is it's a risk factor mm -hmm. to increasing your risk of Alzheimer's disease. But there's so many others. I mean, we from, from using the Amen Clinic protocol, we look at 11 risk factors Mm -hmm. of which genetics is one but mm -hmm. there are so many other factors that influence the likelihood of you experiencing cognitive decline i'd love for you to just explain um what what those are and how you mm -hmm. also became interested in in alzheimer's in the first place yeah i mean what happened i'll tell you this story because it's quite good fun um i've written a couple of books with a lovely dr james brawley and uh, he's um, what in the tipping point book we call a maven he collects information and he arrived in London I think we were launching the a book on allergies with it and he had a suitcase literally a suitcase um, full of research papers on something I was relatively unaware of which is called homocysteine homocysteine oh, yeah. this is a blood test homocysteine and uh, he said this is really really interesting and I said, can I borrow your suitcase overnight, which I did. And I literally stayed up until about six in the morning and read every single paper there was on homocysteine and, and was blown away by it. And then um, went to my publishers and said, this is, in fact, the byline of it was, you know, probably the most important health breakthrough of the century. And the book came out in 2000. And then shortly after that, I met a man, Professor David Smith. I didn't realize just how significant he was as a scientist. He was the vice dean of Oxford Medical School. He was their professor of pharmacology, pretty much was the man who made Oxford University one of the best pharmacology departments in the world. And it was his research group that had found out what Alzheimer's was and developed the brain scan that is now used globally to, to you know, to measure that medial temporal lobe thickness. And uh, then they found high levels of this toxic amino acid called homocysteine in the Alzheimer's brains. And homocysteine is lowered by B vitamins. So really it's a indicator of needing more B vitamins. B12, folate, foliage, think greens, uh, and, uh, and B6. And I think actually what we've learned is it's the B12 that's probably the most important because a lot of people, as they get older, they just start to absorb vitamin B12 much less well, which, by the way, requires um, stomach acid and secretions. And certain drugs like, like the um, proton pump inhibitor, PPI, and acid drugs, they usually end in prazole. These block your ability to make stomach acid, then you can't absorb B12, and then your homocysteine level goes up. So when we were looking at the uh, brain scans uh, earlier, this was the first randomized placebo uh, controlled trial giving either B vitamins or placebo to people with pre-dementia and showing that the B vitamins rapidly um, reduced the rate of brain shrinkage. And then, of course, there's another piece to this, which is fascinating. They, they um, then discovered that one's level of omega-3 fats, which are in seafood, uh, is incredibly important. And the way they did this was they didn't give omega-3, but they looked at the omega-3 levels in the people on this study and split them into thirds. In other words, the third who had the lowest omega-3 and the third who had the highest omega-3. And what they found was that the third with low omega-3 had no benefit at all from the B vitamins. But the third with a high um, vitamin, uh, uh, the high omega-3 had not 52% uh, less shrinkage which was the average for the total brain, but 73% less shrinkage, which brought them to the point of the rate of brain shrinkage that you see in normal people in their 70s with absolutely no measurable change in cognitive function. And then when you're a, a, a doctor, you're, you're kind of, yes, stopping the brain shrinking is really, really important. 
you know, physical things make a big difference to psychological experience. But what you want to know is clinically, has this person got the symptoms that would classify them with dementia? And it's the clinical dementia rating. And what happened was that 65% of the people given the B vitamins who had a decent amount of omega-3 in their blood ended the trial with a clinical dementia rating of zero. So I think I just wanted, that's so important for people yeah, to understand that point there is that, you know, ending a clinical trial where you were believed at the start of the trial to be on the trajectory to Alzheimer's disease or were they expressing Alzheimer's disease clinically diagnosed at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, it's pre-dementia. So they're pre -dementia. well on that route, absolutely. Yeah, and, and obviously at the end of the trial with B vitamins combined with omega-3, which, which I think is just fascinating that we kind of think that vitamins need to be taken mm -hmm. in isolation, but actually the combined effect is, is, is much greater than yeah. just taking them in isolation. So B12, vitamin B12 combined with omega-3, 65% mm -hmm. of those people um, that were in the trial had no uh, diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease at the end of that That's period. correct. And, um, and also, I should maybe point out here that the amount of B12 given was 500 micrograms. Now, the RDA, you know, it's what you see on the cornflakes, mm -hmm. which I call the ridiculous dietary arbitrary. <laughs> The vitamin B12 is two microgram. And uh, also, uh, we had a meeting with Matt Hancock, who said, yes, B12 is important, but you can get everything you need by eating fruit and veg or eating broccoli, he said. Mm -hmm. Absolutely no B12 at all in the plant kingdom. Uh, it's only in eggs, meat, fish. Um, you know, uh, it's only in animal produce. So why not two microgram, the RDA, but 500 microgram. And the answer is not because you need 500 microgram. Nobody needs 500 microgram. But because a lot of people, you know, 60 plus, um, are not absorbing B12 sufficiently. And to put this into actual numbers, we are talking about two in five people over 60. If you test their blood level of B12, not their diet, but their blood level of B12, um, are, are not getting enough. And I just want to pause you there as well, because many of my clients have low B12 mm -hmm. and, and it's often dismissed by traditional medicine as it's not something to be worried about. Uh, and it's not just cognitive effects that low levels of B12 can um, cause. It's also um, uh, heart uh, effects. People can feel like they're heart, ha having heart palpitations, for example, if their B B12 levels are low. Uh, and it, it's often I find people go with the ridiculous <laughs> levels that well, are stated as RDA uh, and don't look at the symptoms that are indicating that this person isn't yeah. suboptimal in yeah. the context of their nutrient needs and a supplement, a very simple supplement at the right dosage can significantly um, alter their health outcome. Well, you're absolutely right. And the, that reference range that the doctor looks at in the UK might say if you're above 150 or possibly 200 on the serum B12, you're fine. And it's just not true because the only thing that defines an op a requirement for a nutrient is, is the level that removes symptoms. And well within the apparent reference range, we see brain shrinkage. So you find from country to country, Japan has much higher you know, lower level uh, for, for, for B12 uh, than the UK. So we're not we're not even doing the right thing with, with the blood test. So B12 is very, very important. And what actually happens, and it's sort of completely obvious. Uh, I mean, it's so obvious, but I hadn't thought of it, you know, <laughs> until recently, which is if you look at a brain cell, it's got, if you like, the membrane or the skin of it, mm -hmm. uh, where all the talking happens. So one brain cell talks to the next and so on. And uh, that, that brain cell membrane is made of fat. And it's very specifically made of a type of omega-3 fat called DHA, which is very rich in fish. You won't get DHA in chia seeds or flax seeds. And also get... very rich in breast milk, which is why... Very rich in breast milk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that DHA has to attach to something called a phospholipid. Uh, yeah 
Choline is the most important phospholipid, which is very rich in eggs and fish. But you, and, and, and that sort of, we call it phosphorylated DHA. Every single brain of every single animal and every single eye as well, because the eye is kind of like the brain, uh, is, is made of this phosphorylated DHA. And it doesn't matter, you know, wherever you go, basically 90% of the structural fat of your brain is phosphorylated DHA. Now, the sticking of these two together uh, requires B vitamins or requires methylation, which is what the B vitamins do. And if you're not doing methylation, your homocysteine goes up. So when it, it, it's a bit like if, I, if you give a builder a bag of nails, do you get a house? No. If you give a builder a hammer, do you get a house? No. But if you give them a bag of nails and a hammer, you can get a house. So that's, that's really, this synergy is absolutely vital. And then what's amazing is since uh, Professor David Smith's trial at Oxford, uh, a lot of other studies, which seems to get no or minimal effect, like there was a big study in the States called B-Proof. It gave mm -hmm. a decent amount of B vitamins, um, and got very little cognitive benefit, went back to their original blood samples, looked at the omega-3 levels, split the participants into lowest third and highest third, and found, oh, my God, those with the highest omega-3 had a massive benefit from the B vitamins, and those with low um, you know, low levels had none. And then another big study in, in um, Sweden, which are given a decent amount of fish oils, like 2.3 grams, like two capsules of, of fish oils. I mean, nice study. It's called Omega-Ad was the name of the study. Mm -hmm. Didn't get much effect. Went back and looked at the homocysteine in the blood at the start of the trial and found that those third with the lower homocysteine, which means they've got the Bs compared to the higher, massive effect. So... We've, we sort of missed a big trick here. We vastly underestimated the effect of B vitamins and omega-3. And to put you in, into the context, because obviously there are other risk factors as well, but the National mm. Institute of Health looked at all of the studies um, in existence to work out what we call the attributable risk of homocysteine and lack of B vitamins, 22% of total risk of Alzheimer's, they attributed to the B vitamins homocysteine, 22% to the omega-3. But that was even before realizing the two work together. So I think conservatively, we can say one third of the total risk of Alzheimer's is simply to do with omega-3 and B vitamins, which are an incredibly easy thing to sort out. I mean, exercising more requires, you know, commitment. Uh, you know, but but having an omega three supplement and a B vitamin supplement is, which will cost you, you know, ten cents a day or something, ten p a day. And but, and I think it's important as well that, that people get the right supplements because there's a lot of supplements that don't provide you. You know, if you go to your local supermarket, often yeah. the quality of the supplement and the volume of omega three that's yeah. in it is not sufficient to touch the sides in the context of uh, it's reducing true. your risk. And what really should happen, uh, you know, is that we should be having our homocysteine level measured. Um, it's a very simple test to do. It should be as common as cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to sort of contextualize what happened here. One of the big pharma company representatives came to Professor Smith and said, if this was a patentable substance drug, we are looking at a multi-billion dollar drug right here and now. But the problem is anything that nature has made, B12, omega-3, you cannot patent. If you don't patent it, you don't get a monopoly. If you don't have a monopoly, you can't charge, you know, large sums of money. I mean, we're looking at these new Alzheimer's drugs. Sometimes they're pitching them at $40,000 a year, you know, big money. They don't cost that. They cost, you know, a fraction. So no patent, no monopoly, no money, basically. And, and that's where we're at. And I think it's, it's terribly sad. I mean, I was looking at a recent study which showed that $42.5 billion have been spent on these amyloid drugs, which are close to useless. $42.5 billion. That is nearly five times more than it took to get the James Webb telescope built and up in space. 
And yet we've got all the evidence right now to eliminate easily one third of dementia globally, which is the biggest fear, uh, the biggest healthcare cost. I mean, I'm it's talking- a huge cost. I'd love to talk about some of the stati- statistics, yeah. actually, because I think, you know, to contextualize it, we are expecting a threefold increase in the number of people developing Alzheimer's by 2050. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the cost in the UK, I know you mentioned this it, it, in your in your lovely Alzheimer's prevent, is preventable um, a handout that I, that I have here that people can download on 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 the web is you have um, huge costs in the UK. It's, it's I think mm-hmm. by 2040 estimates predict dementia will cost the UK close to four, 400 billion um, well, yeah. a year. <laughs> which is four times the annual NHS budget. So this is not small money that we're talking about in the context no. of helping people. The cost of dementia, in, I mean, the official cost of dementia is more than the total cost of heart disease, diabetes and cancer combined. Um, but there's an unofficial cost if you add up the hours of people who care for their relatives with dementia. Um, you know, we're running into vast sums of money. So here we have a preventable disease. Our experts are of the opinion that we can um, we can cut, you know, two thirds of all this risk relatively easily. And it's conservative to say that we could eliminate a third of all dementia cases. And we know how to do it. And the science is there. And so I, that's my second passion is how do we get this message across? We have, by the way, uh, on our website, foodforthebrain.org. Well, what happened, uh, let me wind back to 2010 when the first, uh, I was with Professor David Smith and he, we were just waiting to break the code to see how the B vitamins have worked compared to placebo and just got the, the result. And, and I said, what now? And he said, well, I hope within five years, it will be standard policy on the National Health Service here in the UK. And I said, what would it be? And he said, well, you have to measure cognitive function 40 years, 30 to 40 years. Everyone over 50 has to have cognitive function test. And if not good, then measure the homocysteine. And if raised, give the B vitamins. The omegas came a bit later. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was skeptical because I've worked in this field so long and I've seen I mean, you know, I, I'm a man who got hung, drawn and quartered for saying sugar is driving diabetes, for saying don't drink loads of milk if you've got breast cancer, for saying HRT is a risk factor for breast cancer, um, for saying that fats are actually essential, for saying that it's carbs that are driving weight, not fat. I mean, I've been hung, drawn and quartered so many times. But you're so- back together and we love you, Patrick, because all of what you've said is true. Well- I'm like, I'm like a flat worm, you know, the head just goes back. But the point is that I, I was skeptical. So what we did at the charity was we got permission to digitize the cognitive function test that's used in memory clinics. Yeah. We then ran a study to make sure that the digital version was just the same, which it is. In fact, it's slightly better. And, um, and then we made it freely available a few years ago to anyone. And uh, we've tested 380,000 people. I mean, today we've tested 100, over 100 people. Mm-hmm. And we want to get to a million people. So the point is you do the test and you can find out how you score. And if you don't score well, there's also a questionnaire, which is called um, the Dementia Risk Index Questionnaire. And it works out across eight domains what your risk is. And then mm-hmm. we've literally launched this month an app uh, or a program that then takes your weakest link. I mean, you can actually choose which one you want to work on and shows you exactly how to reduce your risk um, step by step. But the important point is we did research here in the UK with uh, University College London and the NHS uh, to sort of understand why people don't take the test if they know about it. And the answer is, oh, I don't want to take the test. I'm scared. I'm worried. I don't want to know. I'd rather bury my head in the sand. I don't want to know. Why don't you want to know? Because there's nothing you can do about it. Why is there nothing you can do about it? Because it's in the genes. So one of the most important 
um, missions of this project. I would like in a year's time, if I walk down the high street and stop someone and say, what percentage of Alzheimer's do you think is in the genes? Most people will say 30 to 50%. I want people to say less than 1%. Less I than would... 1%. The message is out there. Less than 1% <laughs> yeah. is in your genes in the context of getting Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. 99% of it is within your control. Absolutely. And so what we what we did, I mean, you know, there's so many, you know, I mean, even your dental health, your gut health, your exercise, your social interaction, your cognitive stimulation, um, your B vitamins, obviously your omegas, your antioxidants, vitamin C, uh, whether you've had high blood pressure or diabetes or heart disease, whether you had a head injury, your level of education when you're young, your sleeping, your stress. I mean, there are so many, so many risk factors. And we realized that you can organize them really into eight mm -hmm. um, eight domains. One domain is the B vitamins and the homocysteine we've spoken about. The mm -hmm. second is, uh, is brain fats. And it's not just the omegas, omega-3 and fish and so on, and the phospholipids, which is eggs, but also vitamin D is a very important brain fat. And we may talk a little bit about ketones and how the brain actually likes to make ketones as a fuel from fat. So there's brain fats. Number three, is whenever you're um, uh, generating energy, you make oxidants. So antioxidants and polyphenols is the next thing. And it's also to do with fruit and veg. So we know people who eat a more Mediterranean style diet, more fruit and veg, less risk. Uh, number four is, is blood sugar. We actually call it low carb and glycemic load. So it's not only eating less carbs, but eating the right kind of carbs. So that's sort of number four. Um, <laughs> Then we have number five is healthy gut. And number six is, um, is active body. So you're actually doing exercise. This is terribly, terribly important. And then we have active mind. So using your mind and then sleep and calm or it's really sleep and stress. So we could get all of those risk factors into those eight areas. And when you do the online cognitive function test, which is not a questionnaire, it's interactive. I can't tell you how it works, but you'll be shown things, you know, whatever. <laughs> you then fill in the questionnaire. The questionnaire then works out your risk. This is sort of an example. Yeah. I know you on audio won't see this, but basically what we're looking at is eight cogs, and some are red and some are yellow and some are green and some are orange. And that that's giving you a score for each of those areas. And then the app that we've just launched, Cognition, helps yeah. you to work out what's to do. So what we're doing now really is putting prevention into action, creating an army of citizen health scientists. We want to get a million people involved. And of course, what happens is there's a sort of caution, uh, you know, warning. There are ad side effects because it's all of these things, your blood sugar, your B vitamins, your omegas, as I know you've spoken about so many times before, and the antioxidants, active body, active mind, sleep, you know, calm and so on. That's what's driving all disease. So it drives everything. All of those risk factors are associated yeah. with every chronic disease. <laughs> yeah, so this is a sort of sneaky strategy <laughs> to actually not just make sure you never get Alzheimer's, which is a preventable disease, but eliminate or vastly reduce your risk for all those other diseases that you really don't need to get. Yeah. I, 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 I love the, the way you've broken it down into the eight cogs because it, it also cuts across what I, I like to call the, the, the four quadrants of well-being. Your, so, so it's really diving. So I look at it as emotional well-being, your physical well-being, mm -hmm. your mental well-being and your spiritual well-being. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of those cogs address all of those areas. And obviously our emotional well-being is often what drives our behaviors in the first place yeah. so one of the things that's really key i think in all of this is to is to help people feel that they've got the power to do something to be emotionally engaged with it to want to make a change and mm -hmm. whether that's whether that's you're engaged with it because a family member has alzheimer's disease or for me personally my my emotional engagement with this topic is I was noticing cognitive decline myself, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is why I reached out to the Amen Clinics because I wanted to know what my brain looked like and mm. what I needed to do about it in order to to slow down and reverse cognitive decline. I was forgetting words. I couldn't 
couldn't recall certain words and I'm in my 40s although some people may not believe that but I'm in my 40s and it's the it was the time for me to take action like you say you know the science is out there that cognitive decline occurs 30 40 and some even say 50 years before you present symptoms and and uh, you know people are demonstrating cognitive decline in their early can be demonstrating it in their early 30s or even late 20s well, I think depending I, on their lifestyle habits well you're right and also if you really get engaged in this kind of way of living uh, then most people have never experienced the level of energy and mental clarity that they can experience even you know even the ones who don't consider they have a problem. I want to tell you the story. I was really inspired by two two men. One was uh, Dr. Linus Pauling. He had two Nobel Prizes, 48 PhDs, um, super bright. When Einstein was asked, are you uh, a genius? He said, if you want a real genius, it's Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling was the man who took Einstein's physics, applied it to chemistry, and all of modern chemistry is based upon Linus Pauling. And he got into vitamin C. So you might go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that man in relation to vitamin C. And he um, he actually teamed up with another guy called Dr. Abram Hoffer, who was the head of psychiatric research for part of Canada and in charge of all the mental institutions there. And um, and together they realized that the future of medicine was what they called orthomolecular medicine or the right molecules. Mm. In other words, nutritional medicine, functional medicine, optimum nutrition, you know, whatever you, you choose to call it. But now what happened was, I, I, I tell you this because, you know, it, it touches on the emotion and the spirit of everything. So I studied with Dr. Abenhofer. He'd treated 6,000 schizophrenics successfully. He'd published the first ever double-blind controlled trials in the history of psychiatry using high doses of B vitamins. Um, so he was well ahead of the curve. And... Um, he would always ask his schizophrenic patient the first question he says what plans have you made for yourself when you get well you know what are you going to do when you get well which was really really uplifting and i happen to know his son who's professor of medicine john hoffer at uh, mcgill university and, and his daughter and um abram hoffer believed that every human being has a fundamental right uh, to have a place they can call home someone they can call a friend and three square meals a day so when he had a, a, a schizophrenic patient who didn't have those things, he'd say, come and live with us. So um, Hoffer's son and daughter have some amazing stories of their life being brought up with, you know, sort of residential schizophrenics who got better and then put back into the community. Now, Hoffer was on my scientific advisory board. I've got an advisory board of, you know, many of the world's leading professors. And, uh, you know, within up to literally two months from his death in his mid-90s. And in fact, I asked his dear friend, uh, Stephen, what happened uh, in relation to his death. And he said, well, two weeks before his death, he stopped seeing patients right? in mid-90s. Um, four days before his death, um, he said, I'm not feeling very well. Two days before his death, he checked into the local hospital. He didn't have diabetes or Alzheimer's or cancer or any disease as such. And in the last 48 hours, his organs just slowed down, packed up. He died with no medication, no pain, um, at peace in his mid-90s with two weeks off work. With a super wow. That's what is our legacy as human beings. And we've forgotten I mean, the average woman in the EU now um, will spend 13 years of their life physically disabled, which means unable to climb 10 stairs. And of course, they'll be wow. mentally disabled as well. So you, you either, you know, you either run with the pack and do what everyone else is doing, you know, eating bad food, not exercising, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, retiring is the, the worst thing anyone can do. Well, because it's, it's retirement and aging, you know, is one of the risk factors. Yeah. And and if you don't learn what you don't use, yeah, you know, dies, whether it's physical muscle yeah. use or whether it's cognitive use. And something you'll love, um, you know, in the context of, of organising this, is I started to realise that there, there, there isn't or there hasn't been a unified theory of what's actually driving cognitive decline. We've got lots of risk factors. <laughs> We can organize them very nicely into eight domains. We can talk about emotional, physical, you know, chemical and so on. But, but what's actually the process? And I started to realize there are really three things going on in your brain. 
we're talking about brain degeneration here. Number one is the structure of it. And, you know, Daniel Amen's been so pioneering in looking at literally the structure of the brain. And when we talk about those omega-3s binding together with the choline and needing B vitamins, we're talking about literally the structure of the brain. We're talking about the shrinkage of the brain. We're talking about its structure. Um, and then you look at the function. And, you know, if, if this was a car, you know, the structure is the parts, the function, you'll think of fuel and you'll think of lubricating oil and the fuel really is how the sugar supply gets messed up, insulin resistance, too many carbs and all the rest of it. Uh, we're starting to learn that brain cells actually, if they can either run on glucose or ketones, ketones are a type of fuel made from fat and the liver. And in some studies, they've been giving a type of fat, which you might have heard of medium chain triglyceride, is yeah. actually specifically eight carbons long C8, two tablespoons of C8 oil, to people with pre-dementia, and they're producing over 200% more brain energy from ketones, ketones. and their, their cognition improves. So we're looking at structure, then function, the supply mm -hmm. of fuel. And, and I think it's important that you mention that because, you know, I want to go back to breast milk because obviously breast milk is, is the fuel that we give our children um, if we're able to, when when they're growing, it's, it's nature's fuel for for feeding up feeding our kids to help their brains develop, yeah. and it's loaded with fat. It's yeah. loaded with fat. It's loaded with DHA, which is a type of fat, um, and, and all of the other nutrients, and and changes its its yeah. structure depending on how your baby is performing in the context of what the nutrients it. The nutrients it actually needs. If it's sick, it will be greener. If it's yeah. not, it, it will be an, a, a more a whitey yellow color uh, because it, it changes its structure to suit your baby. Fats that make ketones. That's the point because you see, most animals have, have got to stand up, you know, within minutes. Otherwise, you know, they're going to get hunted and eaten. So, most animals are born skinny. Uh, they've got to, you know, stand up and physically function very fast. So, you know, a developed body, but you know, small brain. We're the opposite. We are born fat. Um, our breast milk is very high in fat. We can't really function particularly much at all, you know, for a year or two. It takes, you know, a year to start walking and so on. So the human humans basically are unique by virtue of the size of our brain, which, by the way, is, is shrinking. It's getting smaller, not bigger. It is. I agree with you. Yeah. Science yeah. has shown that. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, you know, we're, we're running on these fats. And coming back to function also, you know, if you think of the car analogy of you need petrol and you need oil or lubricant, um, whenever you're making um, energy from either glucose or ketones, you make oxidants, so you need the antioxidants. And uh, if your system starts to sort of gunk up, you have inflammation. Yeah. Um, so that's a critical part of, of uh, function. And then also um, circulation is vital. So what we know is that you know, about two-thirds of dementia is called Alzheimer's. About 17% is called vascular dementia, mm -hmm. which is circulation problems. About 10% is called mixed, which is mm -hmm. usually a bit of Alzheimer's, a bit of vascular. So we're looking at, I mean, you add those together and you're up to over 85% of all dementia um, is either Alzheimer's or vascular, which vascular dementia has the same risk factors, the same preventative treatments. It's all the same. And then a recent study came out and it found that the homocysteine level, high homocysteine increases the risk for vascular problems in the brain by 17 times. So we've got structure and then we've got function, fuel supply, antioxidants, reducing inflammation, and all that sort of thing. And then the third part um, is utilization. And this is so important. I remember years ago studying with Fritjof Capra, who wrote the book, The Tao of Physics, and was one of the first people who started to talk about systems-based science. His book, The Web of Life, is very excellent. And he would ask the question of, what's the difference between an inanimate object, like a bicycle, um, and an animate object, like us? So a bicycle's got bits, got parts. We'll call that sort of structure. The parts relate to each other. You know, the chain turns the wheel and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff, which is kind of like function. But um, what makes an animate 
object different from an inanimate object is there's life flowing through it. And that life, that energy, that stimulation, you know, imagine your neural network of, you know, billions and billions of brain cells. I mean, the average brain cell is making 10,000 connections to another one. And flying along there, you can imagine it like little bits of light or all these stimulations, uh, neurotransmitters switching this and that on and so on. And that's exercise and dancing and, you know, doing anything that is not routine, anything that requires your brain to think, you know, how do I walk? How do I balance? How do I do this? It's social interaction where you have banter like we are doing. We're having to think quickly and change that. It's doing Wordle in the morning or learning a language or learning how to play a guitar or piano or any of that sort of stuff. And um, so that's all part of the utilization. But also you have to then have sleep because everything gets repaired you know, during deep sleep. Yeah, exactly. And that's when the, the brain processes everything that's gone on in the day. That's when you start to make new growth, new connections, regenerations, and so on. And then all of that process of sort of learning and then recovering and learning and recovering and rebuilding, which is very much like, you know, the, the um, you know, sports physiologists know to build a muscle, you have to sort of stress it and then you rest and then you stress it and then you rest. So if you have too much stress, that messes it all up again. So I've started to realize that actually we can say with reasonable confidence, we understand the process that leads to cognitive decline. And it's to do with the combined breakdown in structure, in function, and in utilization. Mm. And that's all under our control. Yeah. I, I, I love you that you mentioned that is you know, we we have so much power. And I think often, I, I really want to explore this in a moment, but I think often we give our power away because we think that there's going to be one pill, there's going to be one one fix. You know, we've become a society where we want a quick fix solution mm-hmm. to a problem that may have been developing over 30, 40 years. And, and it's not a one fix solution like you mentioned there's eight aspects Mm -hmm. that need to be addressed to to repair and restore cognitive function and there's no one pill that's going to do that for you you have to do it for you but before we dive into that because I really like to explore how we empower people better Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to dive into the five pillars just briefly um, Mm -hmm. of brain health and and just have a, a fun facts quiz so five pillars is your feelings, your actions, your connections, your thoughts and your surroundings. So feelings are your emotions, actions, and we're talking about what action we can take personally, what's within our control, connection to yourself and to others, the thoughts that you're having and what thoughts you're listening to, and how your surroundings, including toxins in your environment, influence your cognitive health. So um, I'm just going to go with actions because... We, this is really much about the topic we're talking about today. Is what's the craziest or most exciting thing you've ever done? Ah, uh, okay. Well, do you know, um, I had a crazy experience several years ago. I mean, you know, more than 20 years ago, I just split up from a long-term relationship. And I was feeling very lonely. Hmm. So I thought, what am I going to do about this? And I decided I'm going to go to a continent um, where I don't speak the language and I'm going to climb a mountain uh, in absolutely the middle of, you know, nowhere. Uh, and that's how I'm going to start this journey. And there's a few more things developed. And I went, so I went off to Chile. I went to the very north of Chile. Maybe you remember those miners who got stuck underground. It was sort of in yeah. that. I didn't speak Spanish. Uh, I, I got a map and I got a Jeep and I headed off and I climbed this 20,000 foot mountain. Wow. Uh, what was the name of the mountain? Volcan Copiapo. I was being followed by a condor. Um, I had to bury my food and water in on the way up. Was, I worked out be five days up and three days down. And um, uh, I was in the absolute middle of nowhere. If, if I had no phone, I had no nothing. If there had been a problem, I think the nearest sort of rescue team were about three days away or something. And uh, I just, it was quite an adventure. And I learned that most of the conversation that I think I'm happening is actually happening in my head. Because after a <laughs> After a few days in the middle of nowhere, without any chance to call, and it's just just you in the middle of nowhere, the mind sort of starts to really 
you know, get still and you become present and it's quite amazing. So I was interested in and uh, converting loneliness into aloneness and then ultimately into all oneness. I love that. I love that. And I think, um, oh gosh, that's a whole other topic of conversation. <laughs> um, is is how we are sometimes don't like to be alone with ourselves mm -hmm. because we don't give ourselves that permission to listen to the relationship we have with ourselves personally. But, and sometimes it's because it is a bit toxic or really toxic. Mm -hmm. uh, um, or we've never listened to ourselves. We've never taken that time and given ourselves that permission, that space uh, in life to just pause and reflect. What was, your, what was your biggest discovery in that period? Was it the fact that you were your thought your thoughts started to calm down, or that you were able to hear what you were thinking about? What was your biggest discovery? Well, it was that, but I also, after that, I went off to Peru. There were sort of a number of coincidences that happened, and I think coincidences are terribly important. So to create, to create space in your life where you can kind of, you know, go with the flow. So I did find myself in Peru, and I went off into the Amazon and spent time with the Shipibo Indians. Wow. Uh, drank some of their um, ayahuasca, which is the medicine. It's the, really their sacrament. And uh, then I went off into the mountains in Peru and met another tribe and went off with them and so on. But what happened was I reconnected, or I connected with nature um, in a very fundamental and deep way. And I realized that's what happened for a lot of us is even if we live in the countries, we've kind of become urbanized. And also, you know, I turned my phone off for this recording, obviously, but very often I go away um, without my phone and without my computer, uh, just to be present in a new environment, uh, wherever it might be. And I think that's really very important. And nowadays, I mean, you know, we have this um, uh, nomophobia, you know, no mobile signal. <laughs> I mean, I'm out of signal. I can't function. I'm out of signal. So we sort of in this, you know, this situation where we're not only, I mean, there was that classic study where they, they actually, gave people an electric shock and asked them in the study how much they'd pay to not have it. And people would say $10, $5, $2, whatever. And then the real study uh, was yet to follow where they left them alone in a room uh, with no one, no phone, just them. They didn't know how long they were going to be there. It was actually 15 minutes. And there was a button on the table. And if they pressed the button, they could give themselves an electric shock, exactly the same shock that they'd said they'd pay to not have. I think one man gave himself over 100 electric shocks. And the vast majority gave themselves electric shocks just to relieve the, the boredom or the terror of being on your own for 50 minutes in silence. Wow. You know. Wow, way, that's amazing, isn't it? it, it you is. know. Yeah. To, to, to have to that sell, need. We're trying to sell mindfulness, uh, which is sort of a bit like mindlessness, you know. And uh, most people are absolutely paranoid of having you know, even a minute, you know, without that connection. So we have become digitally addicted. No, I completely agree with you 100%. Uh, and, and I absolutely love not, not being on social media because it, it allows you that permission to connect with, connect with the people around you <laughs> without all of the distractions. And, you know, 30 years ago, they never existed. We had a telephone on the end of a cord and it was perfectly okay <laughs> uh, to to have a telephone call. And outside of that, there was there was there was nothing. We would just connect with with the with the people that we were socialising with, and and life was life was pretty good. Yeah. But now, obviously, children have grown up in a digital 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 world, and they don't know what the world was like before. And sometimes it's hard to tell show them. It's true. What it can be how different it can be and how healthy it can be without having the digital connection. So I'd love to dive into that in the context of the food for the brain initiative that you're, that you, that you, that you have in helping people uh, realize that Alzheimer's is preventable and is within their control 99% of the time. Yes. Um, what is it? 
because I know we talked about a lot of aspects of this is that understanding your blood markers, understanding homocysteine, understanding inflammation, C-reactive protein is a common test, understanding vitamin D status, omega-3, B12, many of which are not tested mm -hmm. in the current protocols used by the National Health Service here in the UK. Uh, and for those that are listening overseas, of may, maybe your primary care doctor is not looking at those biomarkers in the context of your cognition. So that's one of the things that I think we really need to shift is, is making people more aware and getting the appropriate tests at a certain level. But there's a lot more that we could do in the context of educating and empowering organizations and changing the shift in the NHS. What do you what do you think really needs to happen to make this effective in the in, over the long term? Because well, we know that people have been almost brainwashed by mm -hmm. certain industries that it's outside their control. They don't have the power to make the change. And, and it's about empowering people again that they own they yeah. have the opportunity to own it and completely turn their lives around i think there's a few aspects here first of all in the uk we're lucky thanks to the wonderful work of people like dr michael dixon we have social prescribing social prescribing means that a gp can actually elect to spend some money on something that is not drugs and um our app cognition um, which costs five pounds a month, so it's not nothing, mm -hmm. um, is socially prescribable. So it's something a doctor can, number one, contact everyone over 50, get them to do the cognitive function test, the assessment, which is which is free, and it will already tell you where to go. But if you want to dive deeper, um, then you, you've got to pay something. So um, it's, I mean, our healthcare systems, wherever you are, in effect, are broken. So what we've got to do is take the pressure off the doctor, but allow the doctor to send someone somewhere. And in this case, it's to this you know, cognition process, where they can start to do something for themselves. Also, we, there's been, um, we hope within a very few period of months um, that you can test all of those things we're talking about on a very, very simple pinprick blood test, home test kit. So we're working as hard as we can to get Simple testing for things like homocysteine, you know, mm -hmm. easily available. But I want to say something here. The Our charity is not funded by anyone, drug company, vitamin company, or anybody else. And we've managed to reach, you know, getting close to half a million people and do all this work since 2010, you know, so we're now over a decade. And we've done it simply by individuals um, joining the charity as a friend, giving 50 pounds. We, we actually have raised 240,000, which I want to say up until recently was more than the UK government had actually spent on Alzheimer's prevention in total. Oh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But the that is completely is, enough. That is yeah, the absolutely shocking. Is that we know what needs to be done. Um, we need money. We really need money. Uh, so anyone who can simply join our charity, Friend of Food for the Brain, £50 a year, is contributing to that. Because what we want to do is, you may agree, healthcare you know, is largely broken. And you'll go to your doctor you know, when you need to and when you can. But what we want to do is to move into a different kind of process called citizen science. Citizen mm -hmm. science where you can become part of a community of people who are measuring their cognitive function, making changes, recording the changes, getting tests, recording the tests, and so on. Because with this amount of information, which we can then share back to everyone who's involved, and gradually we will learn, because there never can be a single you know, cure for these problems because we are a complex adaptive system. Uh, what's driving them are a number of factors together. And you just we just can't keep doing these randomized placebo-controlled trials for multifactual things. What we're going to take what we know, which is a lot, get people to make changes, measure it, which is what we're doing, and look at what works, look at what different doesn't, look at you know what are the simplest changes that people can do. 
and get people involved, educated and involved and sharing this with everybody else. I would like this to become a bit like, you know, a chain letter where if yeah. everyone over 40 tells everyone over 40 to go to foodwiththebrain.org, do the cognitive function test. That's all you have to do because as soon as you do that, it all becomes very, very clear what to do next. Mm. And I believe that this kind of um, route in, and not just UK, but you know, globally, is the way to go. We have to take charge uh, of our own health. We are the only people who can change our own health. We're the only people who can change our own mind. You know, it's entirely up to you. No one is going to save you, but you can save yourself and you're not alone because we're doing it together. Yeah, do you know, Patrick, that's such a powerful message. And given, given this show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain, what one piece of advice would you give anyone who is concerned or struggling um, with cognitive decline? Well, the first is do the test, because once you've done the test and the questionnaire will tell you, you know, exactly what to do. And then pick one thing, or you know, two things, something very, very simple. I mean, I, I want to just throw in just a couple of examples here. You know, kids. I mean, we hear about kids in their twos and threes who suddenly lose their temper and they, you know, they lose their rag and they can't deal with emotions. And we're like that sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. And yet what people don't realize is that omega-3 actually um, is about emotional stability. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a psychologist. So my whole orientation originally was about psychotherapy and dealing with the psyche side of things, but I totally underestimated the impact of nutrition. When you get nutrition right for the brain, suddenly you're calmer, you have more space, you have more intelligence, you have more um, witness, and then you can start to deal with the stuff in life that's left its scars, whether physically or emotionally, but you have to kind of get the energy first. And I, have I, no- I, I think that's so important. I really want to pause you there. And, and thank you for sharing that. I know we're coming up on time, but it's so important that we give ourselves that emotional bandwidth that is influenced by nutrition, by having that appropriate nutrition. And, you know, I, I'm a parent myself and very focused on ensuring that my daughter has the appropriate nutrition mm-hmm. to give her the emotional bandwidth and help her develop her in- intellect and and have that calm sense that she needs when she's engaging with myself other people and we don't take that time do we to join the dots between behaviors in children and this is a whole other topic of discussion but uh, but i'm super passionate about it which is why we have the the wellbeing warrior academy is to really focus on empowering kids and families to take charge of their well-being and be the boss but is is the importance of nutrition it's absolutely vital, <laughs> and it's something that you can do. So you can wake up in the morning and go, right, I am going to eat a healthy breakfast. I am going to take my omega-3 supplements. I am going to do whatever I need to do. And the other thing that is a constant reminder for me uh, is a saying by someone, I'm not sure if it was Wittgenstein, or no, I wasn't, I don't think, but it's, it was a simple saying, which is better to light a candle than rage against the darkness. Yeah. So, you know, when you start your day, think, what can I positively do for myself or for other people what can i positively do how can i make a positive difference rather than usually we get caught up in all our negativities and our thoughts about this and that whatever so better to light a candle than rage against the darkness there's a lot of darkness out there that deserves being raged against the psychologists (laughs) tell us depression is usually just anger without enthusiasm no question but stay positive what's that thing that you can do it will make a positive difference to you and to other people. Um, that's my kind of reminder in the morning. And 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 for everyone that is listening, that's so important. One thing, it, you know, I've had many guests on my show. One change starts a, a catalyst effect. So it could be reducing your alcohol consumption. It could be eliminating caffeine. For you if if you if you feel you're you, you're becoming addicted to caffeine and caffeine caffeine is not always good for the brain just one thing one change that you can make can radically alter the trajectory of of your life patrick how can people 
get hold of you, learn more about Food for the Brain and get involved? It's very simple. Just go to foodforthebrain.org. It's all there. You'll click on the link, take the cognitive function test, just follow the journey through. But don't allow any excuse to get in there. Just go to foodforthebrain.org, take the test. Even if you feel absolutely fantastic, it's a very interesting process. You'll learn a lot from it. And please share it with everyone you know, especially anyone over the age of 40 or anyone you know who might be having issues or concerns about their cognition. Thank you, Ruth. Oh, no, you're welcome, Patrick. And remember, everyone, this show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain. You are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to radically change it. 99%, as Patrick has mentioned, is within your control in the context of cognitive decline. If you love this show, please like and share it. Really important that we get this message out to all those that need to hear it, particularly if you've been affected by the topics that we've talked about today in the context of Alzheimer's, dementias and cognitive decline, or any of the concerns raised about blood testing and markers, please do connect with Patrick. Please do go and check out foodforthebrain.org and make sure that you do the cognitive test. Thanks, Patrick, so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. And if there's anything I can do to support you, I'd love to have you back on the show, uh, you know, further down the line to, to talk about the results that you're achieving um, with, with the new app that you're launching. That would be amazing. Thank you, Ruth. You're doing a great job there. <laughs> you're most welcome.